Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market innovative oncology medicines that address unmet needs for people living with cancer. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about understanding your pathology report with Dr. Angelique Levi. Dr. Levi is an associate professor and the director of outreach in the Department of Pathology at the Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Pathology, wow. I think um, a lot of our listening audience, they think pathology and they think Quincy, the morgue. That's so funny you say that. That was my nickname in medical school. Quincy? <laughs> yes. You don't look anything like Jack Klugman. No, but in anatomy, I guess, you know, that's what my partners called me. Oh, were you really into the anatomy thing? I guess I was. It stuck all four years. <laughs> and did you know you were headed towards a career in pathology? No, definitely not. I would say I was open to everything. I wanted to uh, do something so I thought involving children, so for sure I thought I'd be in pediatrics. Uh, I really loved my rotation on the wards in OBGYN, happy families, delivering babies, doing surgery. And it wasn't until I did an elective um, through a summer program at my medical school where I did some research and um, was exposed to the visual aspect of pathology. And I'm a very visual learner and very curious, and it always seemed to answer those questions of why. And so that was intriguing to me. Um, and going through uh, clinical rotations, the lifestyle of every other night call for those <laughs> specialties that were most appealing to me probably wouldn't have fit my um, you know, persona. So that didn't work out. I guess, but I guess that dates you to before all these rules about nobody takes call. Absolutely. Like that. You know, I wouldn't have guessed that looking at you for our listening audience. Every Dr. second Levi's. and third night call was definitely in the mix at that time. Well, yeah, I, I lived through that myself. Um, so what do pathologists do if they're not in the morgue, which apparently you are not mostly? So the vast majority of pathologists community-based and otherwise uh, diagnose disease. So we are responsible for writing reports on tissue that comes to the lab. And that tissue can come to the lab by a surgical procedure or a biopsy or even a fine needle aspiration. And so much of what we do is behind the microscope and uh, compiling reports for those treating physicians, whether they're oncologists, general surgeons, or dermatologists. Now, does everything that get re gets removed by a doctor or a other kind of practitioner or in the hospital, does everything have to be reviewed by a pathologist? So there are PAs that work in the lab, and they will assist pathologists, but only uh, with pathology oversight. So there may be um, gross descriptions, which are part of a report, also mm -hmm. the macroscopic description that would be initially reviewed by perhaps a PA, um, only under the supervision of a lab directed by a pathologist. Sure, but like, let's say I go to a dermatologist, and she removes something that she's certain is not going to be a malignant or anything to worry about. Does 
is she obliged to send it for review or is that her judgment? No, that's her judgment. I see. So not everything that gets removed has to be uh, pathologically reviewed. If it's sent to a pathology lab, a pathologist will review it and submit a report. If it's not uh, if the treating or clinical person decides not to send it, that we wouldn't see it. So it's it. the judgment of the person who's taking out the, the tissue or... Right. Okay, gotcha. And, you know, I know uh, how important it is uh, and how hard it is sometimes uh, to differentiate what's often like the biggest concern for patients, not always, but is this cancer or not, right? A lot of biopsies or you know, uh, tumor removals or mass removals, that's kind of a focus, uh, obviously not exclusively. And um, it seems to me that I remember that's not always so easy to do. No, absolutely not. But you're right. That is the, the focus, primary focus. Um, we will receive a tissue and our main objective is to analyze that tissue for disease. And then the disease question is, is it cancer or isn't it cancer? If it's not, it's important to... Um, diagnose what may what inflammatory condition uh, it may be for treatment options. But usually the burning question is, as you say, is it or isn't it cancer? And that's primarily what uh, we do, especially here at a cancer center, um, where we come into play and, you know, develop a report that is very specific to cancer. Hmm. So is that not really straightforward? Could we train a computer to do that, to take pictures and look at the cells and say, oh, yeah, that's cancer? We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> that would put you out of business, right? Uh, well, pathologists are trying to use the help of um, digital pathology and review, and so not with uh, full success and certainly not without the guidance of a uh, human-trained eye. There are still very uh, specific morphologic features that computers haven't been able to be trained to do. Radiologists would love to also be able to do that, and we're certainly developing um, certain algorithms in, in the area of digital pathology, but at the end of the day, it's a pathologist's eye and the human experience um, that can discern how we've classified certain tumors and how we then go on to um, uh, stage them, and that then will dictate the prognosis or treatment. Gotcha. So how easy is it on average? Can you just look at a slide and say, oh, yeah, this is cancer, no problem? So in some cases, certainly uh, it's it's relatively, um, you know, certainly certainly training doesn't take too much time, but that that's for maybe very common um, cases. So I I I hesitate to say yes, it could be easy in certain cases because there are uh, like with anything else um, mimickers and mm. benign mimickers of cancer, and so it really doesn't come until the end of a long period of training because there's no room for error, right? So we can't be right 80 or 95 percent of the time. We really need to be right as. 100% is the expectation. I sure would hate to lose my prostate for a benign condition that you goofed on. And that's a great example of an area where it's quite complicated. And uh, the distinction between cancer and benign is very difficult. And so that's an area where second opinions have also come into play for that very reason. Uh, folks who um, haven't been trained with specialty expertise in prostate pathology, you know, may not grade a certain cancer 
cancer, may not recognize a certain cancer, may not do a certain test to um, prove or confirm cancer. And so that in particular is an area um, that that requires a great deal of skill and expertise. And that's actually one of your areas of uh, specialty, right? It is. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, uh, our topic tonight is understanding your pathology report. Uh, you know, path, uh, prostate pathology may be a, a good example to walk us through because I know there's all these scores and grades and Gleason this and depth that. And having had two uh, close relatives in the past year or two, uh, go through this process of a new diagnosis of prostate cancer, both lay people, very intelligent, but watching their heads swim through this, uh, you know, really brought home to me how difficult it is. And, and of course, I guess the caveat for all of this is that patients should rely on their physicians to help them understand the pathology, I guess. But, you know, we've got my chart now and eventually mm-hmm. people are going to see their reports. And I know people, you know, often come to me and say, well, you didn't tell me about this thing, but that thing is something that I, of course, edited out because it's not important, but it has a star next to it. So people want to know. Mm-hmm. So what 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 does the man with a prostate biopsy, what's he going to find on his report? So the first um, part of a pathology report is that they, each pathology specimen is assigned um, a unique accession specimen number. So every institution has their own system and every uh, specimen has its own unique number. Uh, That's um, how we will identify that case moving forward. Then there are patient identifiers with every pathology report, and those um, are include the name, first and last, date of birth, date of the procedure, the type of procedure. And so those are uh, specific to that um, particular specimen. And I guess you want to make sure it's yours. Absolutely. And you <laughs> right. want to make sure it's the right date, the proper laterality, the proper surgeon I mean, is which side it's on, yeah. which side, uh, yeah. right versus left. Um, the treating physicians who are um, also receiving the report that there's all of that information is accurate. Does that ever get mixed up? Uh, it's happened. Oy. Yes, it is. That's terrible. Um, yeah, but we we do our very best sure. uh, safety and um, lab uh, oversight, so okay. QA and QC. Uh, the next part of the report involves the actual diagnosis. And so um, those pieces, depending on whether cancer is present or not, may look a little bit different. So if cancer is not present, it will clearly state negative for carcinoma. Uh, and all of the particular parts. And so for prostate cancer in particular, it's a um, set of usually 12 or 18 biopsies, let's say. Wow. So that can be up to even over 20 here. Um, At some institutions, there uh, is also the option of targeted biopsy. So that adds even more. So You mean using uh, some kind of visualization? Using MRI. Gotcha. To show you where was the most likely area to find cancer? Right. In addition to the standard 12 cores. 12. Wow. That sounds like an ouch. And so there are many biopsies to keep track of, many sites, many um, sides. And then if cancer is present, there is a specific synoptic report 
uh, specific to cancer. What that, does synoptic mean? So it's almost a summary or a checklist okay. of um, standardized findings that we look for in prostate cancer, for example. So it might state the grade, as you uh, referred to. The Gleason grade is what we use for grading prostate cancer. Each cancer can have its own grading system, and Gleason uh, was someone who historically developed it for prostate cancer. And, and we grade, still, what does that mean? How... How, intense it is or how uh, well or poorly differentiated it is how mature the cells look how mature the cells look so the more mature they look we would call it well differentiated which is better better uh, better more akin to what a benign or uh, normal normal cell mm. might look like and poorly differentiated would be um, something that isn't well different well developed, so that More would immature. be immature and aggressive. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so Gleason is a number grading system, and you know different classification schemes use grading systems that even over time may change. And the Gleason grading system has also evolved in the last few years. So it is important when uh, your your cancer is being reviewed, that it's being reviewed by someone that uh, is current with uh, the current grading systems and the current um, standardized terminology, because that uh, will dictate how the most cutting edge and current therapies may be offered. Yeah, no, I know in my, again, uh, with my relatives uh, with their prostate cancer, there was a lot about the Gleason grade. And if it was this number, they weren't going to worry too much. But if it was that number plus one or something like that, like six versus seven or seven versus eight, whatever it was, that was like a whole different ball of wax. Exactly. And so that's exactly how it is. For example, if um, it were a well-differentiated tumor, and as you say, it's three plus three equals six, six out of 10. Um, that would be something that could be watched. And we have protocols called watchful waiting or active surveillance. Um, and then if there were tumors that were called three plus four equals seven, a score of seven out of 10, uh, those may or may not um, be watched conservatively uh, with some annual testing, imaging, and blood work while other Gleason scores of 4 plus 4 equals 8 out of 10 would require some more aggressive management uh, if the patient is well enough to do surgery versus uh, chemo radiation, for example. Gotcha. Well, at least we know that pathologists need to be able to do arithmetic in the genital urinary <laughs> tract. But right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about understanding your pathology report with Dr. Angelique Levi. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market innovative oncology medicines that address unmet needs for people living with cancer. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Angelique Levi. We've been discussing understanding your pathology report. Angelique, before the break, uh, you really impressed upon me, uh, you know, the critical nature, at least in your field, where you review prostate cancer, you know, on these numbering systems. I made a joke about it. you have to be able to add, but obviously that's nothing. The, the thing is actually being able to assess those cells. And this is the difference between, you know, just watching somebody's tumor or mass or prostate and doing something potentially aggressive. Um, so that's really impressive. And I'm sure the same is true of breast cancer and any other cancer where like really making these assessments of benign versus malignant and how aggressive it is and whether I guess it invades and stuff. That's true across the board, right? These are really big decisions for patients. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot must weigh on you, does it not? It's a lot of pressure, uh, and there's not room for error. And we do a great job as a um, physician group and set of colleagues to work together, I would say. Uh, we're fortunate in academic centers to have bigger divisions and departments and folks who have subspecialty expertise. So there's always help, and there's always someone to show it to. And so much so that in uh, institutions where... Um, I've worked uh, currently and in the past, we do daily QA conference. And so challenging cases on a daily basis are brought to a group of colleagues. And we institute very kind of strict rules about cancer cases, new cancer diagnoses in patients and requiring a second pathologist review or a second set of eyes. Always? Uh, for every cancer? For every, for our, that's our in unique, division. yeah, uh -huh. in, in our division. So every new cancer diagnosis uh, will get a second pair of pathologist eyes. Any challenging case is welcome to be brought to a, a conference that happens daily. So it's, it's very much an inter kind of collegial and disciplinary um, uh, discipline. Mm. It's really fascinating. Right now I'm, I'm doing some consulting for a pharmaceutical company which has run some really important clinical trials, and they've got an expert panel <clears throat> who's reviewing the uh, assessment of how the patients responded to the treatment. And we're not reviewing the slides like you do. We're just reviewing you know, the blood counts and, and the pathology reports, and every case is reviewed by two experts. And it seems like there's about a 25% disagreement uh, among these really great experts for each case, and there's 25% of the cases uh, are not clear, sometimes because the pathology reports are not always written in a way that we can really understand them, so somebody thinks it's, it's you know, not good enough and they just can't say, but, so, you know, just even applying the criteria that we all supposedly know very well is so complicated, so I can only imagine at your level where you're actually looking at the cells and the buck stops here, it's a big deal. Absolutely. And the communication is, is key, as you say. And we've spent a lot of time as um, a group of physicians and in our field trying to standardize how we report specifically cancer because that has the biggest impact on treatment potential, whether it's surgery or chemotherapy. And so we have put into place those uh, checklists or synoptic reports and staging systems that very kind of consistently, hopefully, will um, have us reproduce those pieces of information that come up with your um, stage for cancer, for example. Um, but it's not always so clear-cut, and not every cancer is uh, even definable. And sometimes it's not 
so much that you get the answer uh, perfectly correct as much as the, you communicate that you um, think it is needs to be removed, for example, or mm-hmm. that you should remove it conservatively or with lymph nodes. And so um, it it may not be so critical that the um, answer is completely correct, but that the treatment is correct. Right. So it's okay to say we're not sure that this specimen isn't adequate to make that distinction, for example. Sure. It's important to say that, I suppose. Absolutely. So sometimes you don't have enough specimen and you say, well, in this small sample, uh, it may or may not be representative of the greater tumor. Uh, we feel that it is um, worrisome enough that while we can't make a diagnosis of malignancy, we feel the entire lesion should be removed. Mm. And then we can uh, wait to the final pathology on the um, entire specimen. Uh, sometimes it's just too um, complicated of a case, and it may require an extra referral. And often we uh, do ancillary tests, and it's not to say that every single case is definable. Um, Certainly, we try to categorize cases based on their um, markers. Uh, They might define themselves in a way. We do additional tests, sometimes molecular or stains or genetic, um, and that will help us define a certain lineage or category that will again help with treatment options but there's always there's not always a perfect answer yeah and I think the patients uh, don't always know this ahead of time so they think they're getting their biopsy the next day or two they should just have an answer and it's really really frustrating I find when the answer is oh we need to do another biopsy that and then the third time sometimes that can be very frustrating for patients of course so that's um, lends itself also to certain procedures that um, might ask for an intraoperative or intra-procedural consultation from pathology. You mean during the surgery? During the surgery or during an aspiration uh, in the endoscopy suite, for example. And sometimes it's an issue of not having the right material. And that is a sampling issue that we could also be helpful at the time of the procedure to those clinicians uh, procuring that sample. So um, in Uh, The case of cytopathology, for example, we're often called to the endoscopy suite when a fine needle aspiration of lung or pancreas is done. Those are complicated and tricky uh, places to maneuver to try to get to lesions that might be kind of far out or uh, located at a distance Mm -hmm. from the bronchus or in the pancreas, which is also an organ that is deep-seated that's hard to to get to. to. And uh, in that case... Pathologists will go with subspecialty expertise in cytopathology, analyzing single cells instead of uh, pieces or cores of tissue. And those cells will be smeared along a slide and analyzed right there at the procedure site in the hall or in a side room uh, with a quick stain and the adequacy, again, is more about are there lesional cells as opposed to what's the diagnosis or maybe how should we triage this based on what we see? Just is this like, are you seeing something there that's worth looking at kind of thing? Absolutely. And often we can um, also make the call right there, uh, but that's not the goal of the procedure. The goal of that on-site evaluation is to adequately assess a potential differential. Are there lesional neoplasms? 
uh, lesional cells that could be malignant, and if they are, maybe we should do markers for a lymphoma, or maybe we should do markers for a carcinoma, and maybe we should decide with this limited amount of tissue how we can best manage it so that the end result from that procedure will be a full report of what uh, the tumor is. Hmm. And this cytopathology thing that I, I guess is one of your specialties, um, what people might be most familiar with, I guess, would be like pap smears. That's cytopathology, right? Absolutely. So that's probably the largest amount of the gynecologic side of cytopathology, and that's a screening test. Um, and that is a, a great example of a phenomenal screening test for uh, for cancer. And urine cytology is similar in that way, a screening test, whereas uh, using cytopathology in lesional samples where you take a fine needle aspiration of a thyroid mass or a pancreatic mass or a breast lesion, that is a bit more um, directed and diagnostic of a certain lesion. So there's two uh, different kind of ways to look at cytopathology, one in more of a screening uh, sense and the other more of a diagnostic uh, sense where their lesion is present. So if you're screening urine by cytopathology, are you looking for bladder cancer? What other things might you be able to find? Uh, so bacteria uh, and inflammation that could imply a urinary tract infection, which may be seen with um, some blood in the urine. Mm -hmm. um, you may see fragments of a renal stone along with blood, and that would um, not be cancer. Uh, bladder cancer certainly is in the differential, uh, and sometimes even malignant cells from the kidney can uh, go down into the urinary system into the bladder. So this would be mostly for people who have blood in the urine? And then, or? Right. Mm -hmm. um, got it. What about if somebody was found to have a mass, an apparent mass on a CAT scan of the kidney? Would you, is there any role there for um, studying the urine or it's just better to go get the mass? Uh, so now many lesions of the kidney, if they're accessible through a needle, a fine needle aspiration could be done of that mass. So probably more likely a direct sampling, uh, either core biopsy or aspirate rather than a urine. Gotcha. And it seems to me, and again, I, I have a skewed experience because the biopsies that I see are, are bone marrow biopsies or, or lymph node biopsies for the most part, but seems like, uh, and sometimes we have to have other, you know, uh, masses biopsied. It seems like these needle aspirates or needle cores seem to be the go-to for a lot of things nowadays. And sometimes it seems tricky because a lot of times it seems like we're not getting answers. Does that happen very often or is that just my skewed experience that people are doing these needle things and, and you still end up not being sure based on that? You know, I see the other side where I see so many, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so many um, aspirates where I'm putting together reports. Um, so I don't see as much of the um, non-diagnostic or unsat side of it. But I think the value in trying something uh, relatively uh, non-invasive and conservative when it may require only a few hours in an ambulatory care center rather than uh, general 
general anesthesia and an overnight stay makes sense, even if it were not to be fruitful in the end, to at least give it a shot because there's less risk um, and, you know, fewer potential complications. And I guess as long as the patient understands that this is what we're going to try because it's easy. If we get an answer, that's great. If not, we're going to have to do something else, either repeat it or do something more surgical. I guess, again, communication seems so important. Right. Setting the expectation. Right. Which isn't your job. It's the clinician's job. Right. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you're getting blamed for their you know, for their failure to communicate well or, or their failure to understand the limitations of the test. Cer- yeah, certainly. But, you know, that's on us as a profession as well. So we have to also set expectations for um, clinicians who we're sending our reports to. Uh, it's more of a communication issue, I think. And uh, we should be doing a better job in those cases of saying, um, yes, the report's going to take, you know, a week, actually two weeks because we're doing additional testing. Um, or, yes, this is a great procedure if it works, but it may not work, and in this percentage of time, uh, you might not get a full answer. So that that is more about, I think, communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you interact with the clinicians much? I do. Uh, I have somewhat of a unique role as a pathologist um, and carry a title of outreach uh, director here for Yale Medicine, and that um, has kind of put a focus on Uh, having a pathology representative who is responsible to kind of communicate with uh, clinicians and to make it easy for them and to be able to still pick up the phone or visit the office, um, where I think now more and more that that's becoming less and less of a a thing or maybe more challenging to do. Um, But it's really important to kind of keep those lines of communication open, whether it's an interdisciplinary weekly conference where you have an ability to touch base or just uh, whether you have an app with everyone's cell phone and you know how to reach out to folks because as we get busier and busier, um, it may be a little bit more challenging, but it's even more important, I think. Dr. Angelique Levi is an associate professor and the director of outreach in the Department of Pathology at the Yale University School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.